Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey everyone, this is Todd. Thanks for joining the Outdoor Feast this week. We really appreciate it. Hope you're well in these unprecedented times uh, when we are social distancing and when we are spending way more time than usual at home. Our routines have changed considerably for work maybe and for homeschooling and just travel and getting outdoors and exercise. I just hope that you're all staying safe, that you're staying healthy, and that you're taking care of yourselves. I'm thrilled this week to be podcasting with Mandy Bailey and Tim Watson. And Mandy and Tim are both Department of Environmental Conservation wildlife biologists right here in New York State. So had the opportunity to sit down with them back in November in Albany, and they shared some great stories about their field work as biologists. Uh, they shared their stories about their hunting journey and talked a little bit about hunting together, shared some advice. Uh, Mandy is somebody that has started hunting as an adult, and her hunting journey was influenced considerably by her professional path as a wildlife biologist and some of the friends that she had when she was doing grad work and getting out in the field and having exposure like that. And she shares her wonderful story about it. It's really cool. Tim is a lifelong hunter, and he talks a little bit about the challenges of doing a lot of field work across the country and what that means, you know, taking projects, seasonal work across the country from places like California to Wisconsin and beyond, and, you know, how that kind of influenced his hunting journey as an adult in terms of just like being in a lot of different places and, and what that meant in terms of finding community and finding places to, to actually hunt. And then we talk a lot about their field work, their fur bear research, Mandy's bat research that she's done. And I just hope you like this podcast. It's a great conversation. And it's really interesting when you think about the intersection of somebody that's in a wildlife biology field and how that's influenced their lifestyle and their hunting path. So um, enjoy. Thanks for joining us and uh, keep in touch. I am here today in Albany, New York at the DEC office, downtown Albany, with Mandy Bailey and Tim Watson from DEC. They're wildlife biologists here in Region 5, almost my neighbors, like, yeah. like almost yeah, pretty close. <laughs> within an hour or so. And we're going to have this really cool conversation about your backgrounds and what I think is really interesting is like the intersection for you both like all the cool research that you're doing professionally and then the intersection of that with your hunting journeys and like just like what that's like and how it shapes your perspectives and all that kind of stuff so let's start with you Mandy let's just talk a little bit let's introduce you to um, tell us a little bit about yourself yeah so um, I'm Mandy I am a biologist here at DEC I actually just kind of started a new job a couple of months ago um, doing fur bear research. So I'm now a fur bear biologist here based in Albany, um, kind of helping to oversee and coordinate our fur bear program um, throughout the state. It's been awesome so far, but like I said, that's only been about three months or so. Before that, I actually did primarily bat work. So a lot of my background has been in bats and I got my master's degree down in Florida doing primarily bat work and I uh, Went to college, did my undergrad up in Maine, and yeah. When you're talking about fur bears, then, uh, anything specific that you're working on? Or is it general fur bears, or are there any species that you're really keyed in on right now? Pretty much. So I'm I'm 
doing pretty much all of our fur bears and small game mammals in general. Right now, we've got a lot of focus on river otters, um, bobcats. Uh, we have some management plans that will hopefully be coming out soon and that need to be updated. So there's a lot of focus on that. Um, we've got some really cool research going on um, with fishers as well. So that's another big one. And Tim's very involved with that. I'm sure you'll hear a lot more about his, <laughs> all the field work and stuff he's been doing. Um, I mostly just see a lot of the data and then try to make something out of that data. But <laughs> it's really cool. And so I have to, we're going to transition to Tim here for a little bit and then we're going to get back to what you're talking yeah. about because there's a lot to talk about. But I'm going to just say that there's something special about seeing an animal, a wild animal like a fisher or a mink or an otter in the woods, if you're hunting or you're fishing or you're hiking, I don't know. It just feels wild. Like yeah. it's so cool to have them on the landscape and to see them, like to see a mink cross a brook or to see a fisher. It's so, it's just a neat experience. Yeah, I have, agree. They're you definitely, know? you know, they're pretty elusive like, animals in general. So it's always super cool to see them. I don't know. It can make you feel like you're doing stuff right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a good way to put it. So, and Tim, talk a little bit about your background and, and what you do professionally. Yeah, so uh, I am also a wildlife biologist for the DEC, and uh, I work on a lot of the same things that Mandy does, you know, mostly fur bearer management uh, within the state. Uh, but unlike Mandy, she's kind of at a broad scale across the whole state. I'm a lot more focused on just part of our state. So I'm the fur bearer biologist in Region 5, which is, you know, the eastern two-thirds of the Adirondacks from just north of Albany all the way to the Canadian border. So pretty pretty good swath of land. Um, I've been in my current position for almost almost three years now, I think, and uh, I've been in the wildlife profession for about nine years now. And I've just kind of I went to school in Syracuse uh, at ESF, and after that, just kind of bounced around, uh, working a lot of seasonal technician jobs. You know, I lived in California for two and a half years. Wisconsin, Louisiana, Colorado, and you know, fur bearer management wasn't something that I always had a, a ton of interest in. You know, when I first got into wildlife, but you know, I just kind of let my jobs just kind of guide me to where I was interested in. And once I got out of college and started doing a little bit of uh, research on American Martin up in the Adirondacks, I kind of got a lot more passionate about it, and uh, that was kind of been my focus uh, ever since I got out of college. Yeah, you know, so like with Martin too, I feel like from a personal standpoint, so I have a forestry background, not necessarily a wildlife biology background, but like having them extant, like having them existing on the landscape, they're part of a functioning landscape, right? So I kind of see it like a lot of other things where if there's parts of those landscapes that are intact and working and everything, and it's like a biotic component, it's important. Everything contributes. Everything's part of that landscape and that ecosystem, and having them on the landscape, like pine martin are so cool. Yeah. They're like so elusive. And it's just like, it makes you feel like you're in the great Northwoods. We're going to get back to that a little bit. So Mandy, yeah, with your bat research, what, what drew you to that? And talk a little bit about that work and like the significance. Like, I feel like we're at a point with bats, like they play an amazing ecological role. Tell us a little bit, you know, about your experience with all that and what yeah. you were working on. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I first started with bats back in 2008, which is pretty much right when White Nose hit. <laughs> um, and I got involved with it uh, mainly just because I was, 
I was very interested in marine mammals, like a lot of people are, <laughs> for pretty much my whole life. I just wanted to study whales, you know, I just wanted to do whales. And bats have some, so they're very, very different from whales, obviously, but they're also, they have that echolocation component and everything, which, you know, a lot of the dolphins and toothed whales have as well. So my mom, actually, she has worked for DEC for over 30 years doing a lot of the licensing stuff. But she was good friends with uh, the bat biologist at the time, and I started volunteering with him just to get some experience in the wildlife field in general. And basically, I started in a summer, um, doing it in summer, and then I went out bat trapping one time where we were just in a parking lot in Schoharie, and <laughs> it was like a lighted parking lot. And there's, you know, bugs buzzing all around all of the lights and everything. And we just had these. So you catch bats using mist nets. They're just the really thin nets that that's difficult for the bats to detect. Um, And we just had me and two other technicians were going out. We had these nets on poles and we were just throwing rocks to try to get the bats to come down and cue in on the rocks and come down and then just like swooping the net down to try to catch them. Which wasn't very easy, and overall, we weren't very successful. Yeah, that can't be easy. <laughs> no, no. Um, and we did, when we first started, we set up like a net just kind of on the edge of the parking lot as well, but we just kind of had that set up for fun, and then we were like swooping around with these nets, didn't have any luck, and then when we went to break down, there was actually a red bat that had gone into the net on the perimeter. <laughs> so we did, I did actually get to see a bat that day, and uh, red bat's one of our, so in, in New York, we have a couple of different, um, we have nine different species of bats, and they're in two different groups. We've got our tree bats, which are migratory species, um, so they'll be up here during the summertime, but then they go we think south, mostly south. <laughs> We're still, we really don't know a lot about them. But they, you know, they migrate out during the winter time. They're the ones that, you know, there's a lot of, there was a lot of press recently about the hoary bat and uh, wind turbine fatalities and them getting, you know, their population. There's some concern there with they get mm-hmm. killed by wind turbines pretty often. Um, and it's, it is those migratory species primarily that get, um, that are most impacted by that. And the red bat is one of those, those three migratory species that we have in New York. Um, really cute little guys. <laughs> They're kind of like little fuzzy hamsters. And that was the first bat that I ever really saw like close up. And it was just, it was a little female red and I just absolutely fell in love with them from then on and pretty much completely changed my trajectory. So I was, it just started college at that point And, you know, still I took a bunch of marine biology classes and stuff, but really kind of switched over to more just uh, wildlife biology, focusing on that. And I continued to come back um, to the DC and volunteer and work as a technician for the DC pretty much every summer after that doing bat work. And then, yeah. And then, um, <laughs> so that was kind of how I got started. And then I just, you know, I got my master's down in Florida and I was, did my thesis work with a endangered, federally endangered species, the Florida bonneted bat, which is found only in Southern Florida. They're a pretty cool species. They're pretty big overall. They're like 60 grams, which Wow. I don't know how much that means <laughs> to people, but they got pretty, they're, they're one of the biggest uh, bats in North America. And we really just don't know much about them. So they're listed as federally endangered. We have no idea how many there are, what their population trend is. We know that they are there. Um, so I did a lot of work, um, acoustic work, setting up bat detectors that detect their echolocation calls throughout pretty much all of Southern Florida um, to figure out where exactly they are in the landscape, where they aren't. Um, And then there's also a population of those bats that are living on a wildlife management area down there and a number of bat houses. 
So I was doing like a mark recapture study, which is basically just where we were tagging them with pit tags. Um, and then we'd go down every couple months and we'd try to catch all the bats that we could. We'd scan them to see which ones were tagged. We'd tag any new ones. And from that, we can get a good idea of, you know, what their survival rate is, when they um, are actually giving birth, how many juveniles there, there are and all that kind of stuff. So get an idea of at least what that population on that wildlife management area is doing. And we learned a lot of really interesting things from that. Um we actually learned that they they have harems, which is very unusual for bats. Do really? yeah, yep. These bats have harems, so um, it's something that you see more often in the tropics. So in the trop, a lot of tropical species will have that, but not really anything. None of our New York bats do anything like that. <laughs> Must be the warm weather. <laughs> yeah, you <know>? exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and they can uh, give birth year-round, which is also was really interesting that we didn't really know. Again, New York bats do not do that. <laughs> but yeah, so I did that for, you know, I was down there for three years and then came back up here. And most of my research um, in New York, so I was doing a lot of, you know, some research. Uh, New York is the epicenter of white-nose syndrome. So white-nose syndrome is this disease. It's a like fungal uh, disease that was first seen back in like 2007 in Albany County, New York, and has spread pretty much across the country at this point um, and has killed a lot of bats, millions and millions of bats. Um, and it does impact those, the hibernating species, which are cave bats, the other group of bats. So they, you know, hibernate during the wintertime. And so most of our work that we've done at DEC and that I've done, you know, involved with DEC is focused on those hibernating bat species. We go into their caves and mines where the bats are hibernating each winter and we'll, you know, ID all the different bats and count them to try to get an idea of what their population's doing. Um, we also, DC has a really cool program that uh, is completely volunteer-based um, and it's a acoustic, mobile acoustic route. So um, our bat folks actually send out bat detectors that you can put on your car and you drive like an 18 to 20 mile route or so at night. Um, going about 18 miles per hour and actually just kind of record all the bat calls you get. And that gives us an idea of, you know, what bats are active during the summertime so we can know, get an idea of activity levels and things like that. That's pretty cool. I had yeah. no idea yeah, that it's, was even the, out there. It's so. definitely, it's super cool. Yeah. And and New York was one of the first states to do it, which is also really neat. And a lot of other states um, across the country really have started doing a program like that, but it's all based on um, New York stuff. And that's, that's a really neat neat program and it gets people excited about bats which is always good <laughs> yeah it's something that like i feel like it anything that you can do to get people involved yes. like whether it's that or like a bird count or anything you know Definitely. whatever like doing yep. anything like if like, if it's fun and it's like charismatic and you can get people involved it's a cool thing and, and people learn from it and everything yeah you can, you can spread the word i didn't know uh, that white nose syndrome started in Albany County, yep. or at least that's where it was detected. So that's really something that's interesting. I also didn't know that there were migrating bats because yes. like <laughs> the thing about migrating species is that's fascinating to me is the conservation is so complex because it's like when you're dealing with location, different locations, like with, with bats or with birds, I mean, it's not as simple as like looking at the habitat that's here because you're looking at the habitat that's there to multiple states, countries, agencies, whatnot. It's it's incredibly complicated work. Yeah, know? definitely. Yeah. And that's, you know, that that is one of the big questions. You know, a lot of the research on bats these days focuses on white nose just because it's such a big scale. You know, it's it's killing a lot, a lot of bats. But the, you know, the question of the migratory bats is definitely a big issue as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why we really don't know much about those species because it is, we don't really know where they're going and it's, 
it really is an international issue at this point, and it does make, we know that some of these bats are being killed by wind turbines, but we don't have a good idea of what their population is, and Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the big efforts right now is trying to come up with like a um, continental scale monitoring protocol for these different bat species. And it, you know, it seems like it's moving in the right direction, but it is, it's a very difficult effort and we're still, <laughs> still sorting a lot of stuff out there, but yeah, still a lot to learn. Yes, like as, for as sure. the case with a lot of other species as well. It's fascinating. Okay. Tim. So you've worked in multiple States, right? You said you worked in California and you've been all over the place with field work, right? Yep. So talk a little bit about that. Like, and, and I'm interested in your opinion. Like, so I, I, I've done a lot of field work in forestry, right? And so when I tell people I'm a forester and that I, I've cruised a lot of timber, th- there's some kind of like romantic notion about that, that people perceive that like, that is so cool. But then like, they don't see like the black flies that are buzzing around and like crawling through spruce, dog hair spruce and like the rainy days and being soaked, bushwhacking and everything like that. So what was it just like being in those different landscapes and what were you up to and what did you find interesting about it? Yeah. So, um, you know, especially my time in California, I, I spent about half the time in the Sierra Nevadas and so you know, a lot of softwoods there as well, but completely different. You know, the trees there are just absolutely massive. And um, the forest is a lot more open. You know, they take, I think a lot of people out there take uh, bushwhacking for granted because it's just, you can see exactly where you need to go and you can just walk there. All sorts of different trees out there, um, all really interesting. Um, so it's kind of cool being able to go to a complete, completely different part of the country and, you know, everything that you're seeing is completely new um, from the trees, the plants, birds, all the wildlife for the most part. So, yeah, I, I really kind of fell in love with, with the Sierras um, and have been fortunate enough to go back there a couple times for vacation. Uh, I was out there this summer fighting fire, actually, on one of the big wildfires out there. So it's, it's kind of cool having a good knowledge of all the plants and animals and trees and stuff like that um, to be able to kind of teach everyone else that. And I spent the other half of my time in California, uh, complete opposite. I was down in San Diego. Um, so there's not really much for forest down there, a lot of scrubland. Um, and I actually worked on one of the channel islands, uh, studying Island foxes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very different ecosystem, unlike anything I'd been in before. Um, fair amount of cactus down there, almost no trees to speak of. So, you know, it's just wide open, but you're, you're right near the ocean. And, uh, yeah, I, I took for granted, you know, working in an area with cactus until I was actually there. And then it's like walking all over the place, getting spines everywhere. You know, you take for granted just being able to sit down on the ground. So, um, so I, I was hunting pronghorn in Wyoming on September 23rd, so almost two months ago. Yep. I still have spines yeah. in my knees. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, my wife was like look, poking at my knee the other day, saying, "What's that?" I'm like, "It's a cactus spine." Yep. <laughs> one of the one of the guys I worked with, um, he was hiking down into a canyon, and it's pretty loose rock um, on the island that we worked on, and he actually slipped and fell backwards and landed in a giant patch of prickly Ooh. pear. Ouch. And and. Um, you know, the live stuff, the spines are really stiff and, and sharp, um, but they're a little bit easier to pull out. This was a big dead patch of prickly pear. And so all the spines break off, you know, um, at the skin surface. And so he's just got 
hundreds oh. and hundreds of spines all down his back and his legs. Oh my goodness. Uh, and just very painful. Um, and yeah, I remember leaving that job and, you know, months later still picking cactus spines out of my fingers and, you know, you know, in the beginning walking very gingerly and making sure that I'm careful about where I walk. And by the end of it, it was just like, I need to get from point A to point B. I'm not going to try and dance around all the cactus. I'm just going to go. And, you know, if I really needed to get somewhere in a hurry, I just plow right through the cactus and deal with the aftermath later. It's, yeah. It's funny that every place has its own set of perils. And so whether it's cactus spines or black flies or yep. anything like that, there's <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> anywhere you go. Right. And, uh, for sure. Yep. Yeah, I, I worked there for about a year and a half. Really liked the job there, but uh, I had there was a position as a as a technician that opened up back in Region Five in in the office I work in now, and uh, made the move back to New York uh, in 2013, I think. And you know, I was on island for ten days at a time, and then off island in San Diego for four days at a time. And everyone thought I was absolutely mad for. Moving back to northern New York, uh, right as winter was about to set in, and uh, I, from previous work there, I knew that like there was no place I'd rather be. So definitely happy to to make the move back. Black flies and everything, and yep. bushwhacking and and thick forest. Uh, it's just a really special place uh, as far as North America goes. Yeah, I think it's like you know I think about that too because um, I came back. You know, I was gone for 10 years, not California, but I traveled a little bit. And uh, there's just something that draws you back to the Adirondacks, to the northern part of New York. And I feel like it's um, for being east of the Mississippi River is one of the coolest, wildest places out there. You know, it's totally off the radar of so many people, but it's such a great place. It's yep. such an incredible landscape. And it lends so much to the history of conservation across the country, like with people that have been influenced by it from Theodore Roosevelt, Bob Marshall, on and on, yep. you know, it's pretty cool. What do you two think, like, um, we can keep talking about your professional work and everything. I'm, I'm also interested in, like, I'll start with you, Mandy, like, um, how has your professional work and your lifestyle of, like, hunting and so forth, what's the intersection of all that like for you? Like, how has that kind of shaped you? Um, what, what kind of perceptions and influences and just like talk a little bit about what yeah. it's like for you. Um, definitely it's, you know, kind of interesting. So my professional work has really completely shaped my like personal, like hunting story and everything. Um, I was not a hunter, did not grow up in a hunting family and I, you know, I, in high school, as I was growing up, I was very anti-hunting and all about animal welfare and everything. Um, and then I went to, you know, I did my undergraduate work up in Maine. And Maine was super interesting. I think that that was an amazing experience for me in general, just because most of the people that I was with, you know, they, they've got a very strong hunting heritage. Um, and all of my friends in my major, you know, I went for wildlife ecology. They pretty much all hunted. They fished. Um, and so I was exposed to it really kind of for the first time. And it was, you know, taking those, those classes and everything, doing the classwork, we focused a lot on the North American model for wildlife conservation and all of that. And I really learned the importance of hunting, um, which I just hadn't, you know, hadn't known before. I was like, oh, you're killing animals. How can yep. that be doing anything? I don't understand. Yep. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have some good friends that took me out with them. Um, I 
you know, go out duck hunting, go out um, grouse hunting. They call it partridge hunting up there. <laughs> and <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I didn't do it myself, but I just kind of tagged along and got exposed. And I was super interested in it. That really, you know, shaped me a lot. Um, and from then on, you know, when I was down in Florida, um, I, again, had some friends who did stuff, would kind of, you know, super interested in hunting, but didn't do too much or didn't do anything really myself. It wasn't until I met Tim that he finally actually <laughs> had me confident enough to go out and try it myself. And um, I just, it's, you know, now it's completely kind of changed a lot of things, I guess. I don't know. It plays a really big role in our lives. Um, so I have, we have a dog, Boone, um, who I got in grad school and <laughs> Had no intentions of hunting with him at the time. He's a big doofy lab. Doesn't come from a hunting background or, you know, bloodlines or anything. Um, but it's been kind of really interesting because I feel like we've learned how to hunt together, which has been really cool. Um, and Tim kind of took us out, both of us having no real idea what we're doing. But like, hey, we're going out in the woods. It can't be that bad. It's going to be so fun. And now, you know, Boone absolutely lives for hunting now. We do a lot of small game stuff. Um, and it's just... You know, we love doing it. We do it as often as we can just to get out there as much as we can. If we're successful, that's awesome. If we're not, it's still an awesome time out in the woods. Um, and it is, I, I love I love the intersection between the, you know, just going out and hunting and then the professional side as well. Because we're, you know, it's we're involved in management and we get to kind of see how that, like the role that hunting plays in management. And it's, you know... A lot of people hear about it and, you know, I think that there's a big movement right now to get the word out that hunting is conservation and, you know, get out the role that hunting plays in conservation. But it's just it's cool being in the place where we are because we're we deal with it every day and we're really exposed to it. And it's it's just I think it's really, really neat. Yeah, yeah. that's that's really cool. And I admire like I feel like, um, you know, with with your story about like being passionate about animal welfare and everything, and then like being exposed and immersed to some people and seeing um, the experience and like how hunting might be able to fit into all that yes. and everything, and like I personally, I feel like um, like when you look at commonalities with people, um, when you when people say you know maybe somebody's critical of hunting and they say um, you know because of animal welfare standpoint and everything, and like from from an angle of just being a decent human being, of course, we're concerned about animal welfare, yes, right? right? Exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> so like your, your experience and like how that manifests itself takes different paths for certain people, like certain people won't hunt, uh, but other people do find the, you know, the path for that hunting journey and everything. But like, I do think it's a good thing that to have that initial response of caring about how animals live, caring about where they live. And like the welfare and health and everything like that. For sure. Like I don't feel sometimes like, you know, there's this kind of dichotomous dialogue between like hunters and people that don't hunt about the, all of that discussion. But like when you really look down to it, the values, I think there are some commonalities. Like oh, we value definitely. those certain things. I you know absolutely what I mean? agree. And I feel like that's what so, it was when I was yeah. in college. It was getting to know those people who were hunters and everything and just like, hey, they have a lot of the same values. They feel the same way that I do. They care about the wildlife as much, if not even more than I do, because they're, you know, really exposed to it. They're actually out there all the time. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of realizing that, that, that mm -hmm. there were a lot of commonalities and how it fit in. And yeah, it's been really cool. It's, it's really awesome. And Tim, so what's it been like for you? 
And what's your hunting journey been like? Have yeah. You, have you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I'm from Western New York. I grew up in a hunting family. Um, my dad uh, is a longtime hunter, my grandfather, all my uncles. Um, so I was exposed to it at a very young age, you know, from the time that I could stand to to be outside for more than a few minutes and, and could walk with my dad. You know, I was out there hunting with him. Uh, sitting in his tree stand uh, on opening day and Thanksgiving and all that. And, you know, as soon as I turned 16, I was, I was out deer hunting and I, you know, I got my first shotgun when I was 12 and went out turkey hunting as soon as I was able to, you know, some aspects not as successful as one might want to be, especially when you're younger. Um, I always really enjoyed it even if it was waking up at 3.30 in the morning to go out turkey hunting and being absolutely miserable, tired. Um, it's still just absolutely amazing. And, you know, I hunted through high school, college. In a sense, it gets a little bit tougher after college for us because, you know, for me, I was constantly moving around. I was constantly not a resident of the state that I was living in. Um, so, you know, there's added expense. Um, there's not a lot of money in the wildlife field. So, um, it was, you know, tough kind of having to have that take a back seat to a lot of the work that, that I was doing. And then once I kind of moved back and started to plant more roots in New York, you know, got into hunting again. And I think being with Mandy and, and with um, our lab Boone, you know, I've I've always kind of enjoyed deer hunting, but we've kind of shifted gears into more small game hunting now. And uh, we're fairly active people. We don't, we're you know, us younger folks, you know, we have a hard time sitting still, you know, we're fidgety. And so like, I, fall I sleep when I'm sitting still. Yeah, so. I, I, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> we both have a very hard time, you know, uh, sitting still for long periods of time. So just sitting in a deer stand, uh, for hours on end and maybe not seeing anything, it's just not as appealing to us. Um, so being able to get out with our dogs and hiking around, seeing a lot of country, you know, that's what really, uh, motivates us a lot um and you know there's a lot of of species that i don't really have a lot of experience hunting with you know we we keep talking that we're we're going to go duck hunting and you know it's just something that for folks that might be timid about getting into something like that you just got to kind of forge ahead and and just get out there and so we you know we've been doing a lot of grouse hunting we were up in maine doing some grouse hunting this year which was a blast and uh Got to go hair hunting for the first time. Yeah, that's well. really cool. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, <laughs> did some hair hunting with our friends, yep. and uh, you know we've we've gone out turkey hunting a bunch. I think we're gonna go on some more long distance turkey hunts this year. As far as you know, really, instead of walking 100 feet into the woods and yeah. plopping ourselves down for the morning, actually um, putting some miles on and and do some hiking. Yep. And that way, you know, even if we're not successful, we're at least seeing some cool country and and uh, we're staying active. But, yeah, the last couple of years, I've really gotten a lot more interested in turkey hunting. Um, I shot two birds this past spring, which I've only shot four total. One when I was like 14. Uh, and then I shot one on my birthday last year. And then I shot one on my birthday again this year. And then about a week later. So I've definitely got the, the bug now. And I'm I'm 
I was just looking at stuff last night for for Christmas gifts for it's all uh, turkey stuff. Yeah, yeah. For, for all turkey hunting. Oh uh, yeah, for turkey hunting next year. And um, it's good to have things to look forward to. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then getting you know getting Mandy um, even more well situated with stuff for turkey hunting, mm-hmm. so that we can both go out together and uh, hopefully both be successful. A lot a lot to learn, but um, it's been cool. You know, hunting in the Adirondacks, and you know, one of my professors he always said that. You know, this was probably 30 or 40 years ago that uh, there'd never be turkeys in the Adirondacks. Would never happen. It's too cold. There's not enough reliable food. It'll never happen. And, you know, as I, I don't need to tell you, you know, we've got turkeys all over the place up in the Adirondacks. Every time I drive through Newcomb past the Huntington Forest, there's like, and I see the hens out there by the road, someplace on 28N of all places, like yep. right in the center of the Adirondacks. Yep. I'm like, they are some hardy turkeys right yeah there. <laughs> yeah and, like for them to be able to, like right smack in the middle of the adirondack park yep yep and i think a lot of turkeys yep. in other parts of their range you know they're they're being active throughout the winter to scratch around finding food um turkeys up here i think they just kind of hunker down a lot that and they're just going for people's bird feeders and that's yeah. what kind of like keeps them through the winter but yeah, I'm really excited to to get into some of the wilderness areas this year and do some do some more turkey hunting. I harvested a bird off of some recently acquired state land in the Adirondacks, which uh, was really cool. Um, somewhere where we've done a lot of research and seen a lot of turkeys over the years, and so you know you know that they're there. Yeah, that makes it pretty rewarding too. To yeah, like have some newly accessed public land. Yep, that's pretty neat. That's great. Uh, yeah, the the turkey story in the Adirondacks is fascinating, and I I don't you know as growing up, I grew up up in Chestertown, up in the Lake George region, and I don't remember turkeys there until probably mid nineties, late nineties, yeah. or so forth. It's a tremendous success story for the birds up there, but it's so great, and that landscape lends itself to the style of hunting that you're talking about, like. Because I feel that way too, and I don't know if it's because I'm a product of my environment of living up there, but like wanting to see what's over the next ridge and not wanting to sit still and just like continuously being curious about the landscape and what's over here. And, you know, it's a, it's a great style of hunting that a lot of people in the East don't have access to because they don't have that much room, yep. you know. Um, well, one of the things that you mentioned is really an interesting thing that I'd never thought about for people in the wildlife profession. I've I've thought about it for people in the military profession, but like people that bounce around a lot for periods of time for work, like as coming out of school and, and like I've talked to uh, military veterans that have talked about like in their military career where they're bouncing around apart. And there's like that commonality of like, Hey, it's hard to build roots to, to be able to actually get out and hunt a little bit because it's like, it's hard finding places to hunt. Just as you learn some new landscape, you're, you're off someplace else. So that's a really interesting yeah. point that a perspective that you have about that with your situation. And each state's that, a little bit different too. Mm-hmm. You know, each state's got different regulations and laws and um, different season dates and different ways that you can and can't hunt certain species. So yeah. yeah. So there's a lot to learn and it could be, it can be a time when you're in transition moving, you know, it could be a time where it's hard to hunt. And those are formative years too, right? Because like if you're, for many people, it might make the difference between not getting back into hunting. So yeah. it could shift into like, hey, I grew up with it or I was introduced to it in college from friends. But then, you know, my lifestyle or where I ended up or how I live could influence my activity and whether I choose to pursue it as a lifestyle or not. Yeah, it was good, though, because um, at least 
you know, got even more passionate about wildlife in general uh, and knew that that's, you know, the career that I really wanted and that I was going to do anything that I could to, to make that happen. Yeah. And, and like your experience in Florida, Mandy, and your experience in California, it's a broadening experience, you know, because you can assimilate all those skills and that knowledge wherever you are. It builds upon your your career and your yeah, professional definitely. skill set and your personal perspective about life, you know, in general. What do you think um, you, you're both professionally working with fur bears at this point then? So if you had to say, like, what's the general overview of fur bears, the state of the union, so to speak, in New York? Are the populations doing pretty well? Um, are you seeing anything that um, is interesting that you're trying to figure out pieces of the puzzle, like why certain things are happening with certain things? Yeah, I mean, overall, I think that a lot of our fur bears are doing, they're doing pretty well. Um, we've got a lot of pretty interesting research going on. Um, I'm sure that Tim will want to talk more about our fisher population and everything, but they're, you know, they're interesting little critters for sure. Um, I feel like a lot of people these days are getting more exposed to them. Um, you know, we're getting a lot more sightings of fisher in certain areas that might not have historically had them. And yeah, I saw a pretty cool video from the Western New York of a fisher climbed right up somebody's tree stand. Really? Um, like gazed in at them and then, and then ran back down. <laughs> it's a pretty cool experience. Um, seemed like a pretty cool experience for sure. As for a lot of our other species, I mean, overall, uh, like I said, they're doing pretty well. We're, we're wrapping up kind of some big, uh, otter research that we were doing, um, trying to figure out, you know, the status of our otter population in general. Um, you know, they're, they're, pretty cool success story as well. Um, we did, we reintroduced otter uh, to several areas of New York and we now are watching that population kind of come back and it's been really, really awesome to see. And we just did um, a bunch of like sign surveys and everything throughout the state to try to get a better idea of how their population is doing. And it seems like, you know, they're pretty well saturated throughout the state at this point, which is awesome. Um, you know, there's definitely some areas that don't have as much good otter habitat where you don't see them quite as much, but it, you know, where there's habitat, they're there. Um, so that's really neat. Like I said, we're working on an otter management plan. So that's one of the big things I've been working on right now. And yeah, we're talking about, I guess, bobcat or another one that we're, we're doing some work with. We've, trying to kind of come up with good ways to get a better handle on our bobcat population as well. So we're talking about some research that we might be able to do with bobcats. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, most of our other fur bear populations, you know, have been doing very well for quite some time. A lot of the not as uh, charismatic species, you know, populations like uh, for mink and weasels and beaver, um, you know, all very strong, pretty much all throughout the state. Uh, I think, yeah, our bobcat and fisher populations are kind of moving through the, the Lake Plains area in like, you know, Rochester, Buffalo, kind of pushing farther north. So people in um, uh, Monroe County or Livingston County, uh, Erie County, western parts of the state, you know, they're seeing more and more fisher um, over the years. Pretty much everything else, you know, populations are doing really good. The one species, uh, you know, for for me in the Adirondacks, I'm pretty fortunate because we have a, a lot of uh, wild country, a lot of good habitat uh, for most of our fur bearer species. Um, so um, I always end up reverting back to talking about Martin because they're just the coolest uh, fur bearer species out there. But Martin population is very, very strong. Uh, throughout the Adirondacks. We're also 
just in the initial phases of working through a Martin management plan. But, you know, our forest in the Adirondacks, um, as, you know, as I don't need to tell you, Todd, they're aging. Um, and so we have less and less young forest uh, within the Adirondack Park. And um, some of our prey populations are, you know, maybe not what they used to be. Um, so our seems like our fisher population is uh, is in a little bit of a decline. Um, you know, they're still very commonly seen throughout the, the Adirondacks, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, part of it's just, they just don't have the prey that they once had, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, our, our Martin populations are, are doing really well. They're feeding on a lot of small mammals, whereas fisher are, you know, they're focused a little bit more on medium sized animals like grouse or hare or turkey or, or porcupine, you know, a lot of Adirondacks, you don't really see porcupines very much. No. Areas like Newcomb, like. Yeah, I, the, I don't think I've ever seen a porcupine in Newcomb. I've never seen a porcupine in Newcomb. I've found porcupine kill sites from where fishers have yeah. killed porcupines, and, where the quills and you know how they flip them over, yep. and that's fascinating. Yep. The whole story about the fishers and yeah. the porcupines. So and in the, the eastern yeah. eastern Adirondacks, you know, we have a lot more oak, and yeah. uh, it's a little bit more temperate there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the porcupines do a lot better there, and it seems like the fishers do a little bit better there as well. Um, but we're we're starting up a research project. Um, we kind of started it last year, but we're really giving it more of an effort this year with trying to live trap fisher, um, put some radio collars on them, um, track track them, get an ideas of home range survival, um, trying to get estimates of what their abundance is to really get a better idea of of what our fisher population is doing in the central Adirondacks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of other states have done studies like this. So we kind of are trying to draft off them with what our population might be like. But until we kind of get boots on the ground and start yep. collaring some animals, you know, it, it's yep. hard for us to really uh, yep. get a good idea of it. Yep. You've got to work on that baseline, yep. right? Yep. yep. Absolutely. And uh, I love the, you know, the Martins. Again, like I, I said this before, but it's like emblematic of a wild northern Definitely. forest. You know, yep. just the having them on the landscape. And I was up in Madawaska um, up in Santa Clara. Mm-hmm. Oh, a month or so ago, it was still, it was still late summer. So it was a couple months ago, but anyway, um, this wasn't Martin related, but there were spruce grouse signs and just like being in a place where there's Martin or spruce grouse on the landscape is pretty amazing for being in the Eastern United States. It really, yeah. test. it's a, it's a testament to New York and our public lands and what we've got to be able to enjoy yeah. and private lands too. But I mean, you know, the landscape itself is amazing. As far as the U.S. goes, you know, we have some of the strongest Martin populations east of the Mississippi. You know, I would say definitely stronger than Wisconsin and Minnesota, Michigan. Yep. Uh, Maine's really the only other state that, you know, they have a very strong uh, population. They have, a, they have a lot of forests, though. Yep. But our population in the Adirondacks, even though it's, it's kind of cut off from all the other states uh, and populations in other states like Vermont or New Hampshire, you know, it's... They're doing, they're doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. They're thriving for sure. Okay. We're going to bounce back to like a a personal question about hunting and advice and everything like that. So you two hunt together and talk a little bit about um, any advice you would give for new hunters. Mandy, we'll start with you. Like part of this whole podcast is, is helping people break barriers for entry to hunting for people that are curious about nature and about, you know, about connecting to their food. What have you learned as a hunter through your journey? And like, what kind of advice would you give to to new people? I think, I mean, one of the things that I really learned is I think it's just so important to just get out there. Um, I feel like 
before I started actually going out hunting, you know, it's, it seems very intimidating. <laughs> You're like, I, I didn't grow up with firearms or anything. And I, I, you know, I personally wanted to feel very confident uh, going out with a firearm, both, you know, that I was going to be safe with it and that I'd be able to, you know, kill an animal in the most ethical way possible. Um, and I just think it was a lot of like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I can do it. And it's just... I just think it's really important to just get out there and, you know, if, if you're not comfortable at first, you know, just go out. If you don't want to take a shot, you're not comfortable about it. That's fine. Just don't take it. Um, but just like getting out there, um, you're not going to get comfortable until you're putting yourself in that situation and just being okay with kind of not, not feeling like you're, you know, you don't have to be a professional to go out. Um, and I think it's, it's, pretty neat like talking with a lot of other new hunters and everything and it it just is i think it's a big like confidence is a big thing especially personally i think like for women it it kind of makes a difference like we want to feel pretty sure that (laughs) we're gonna do things right and um and i think that working with other new hunters has been awesome um i love you know everyone kind of working together and and uh getting confident going out and um yeah, and I feel like, you know, even now, like, I've been hunting for three years or so now. Um, I still don't necessarily know exactly what I'm doing, but... <laughs> but you're doing I'm it. I'm doing it. I don't, I don't either, fan, by yeah. the way, so... <laughs> like, I right. ha- and that's the thing, is I think, you know, we think, like, oh, these people have been doing it for their whole lives. They know exactly what to do. They know how to do it well. They know exactly where to sit, and they're going to see all the deer go by. And, like, I'm sitting out here day after day. I don't see anything, and... Mm-hmm. Um, or like I'm walking through the woods. I haven't flushed a single grouse. Like, I don't know. What am I doing wrong? Uh, but you're not doing anything wrong, you know? Right. That's, <laughs> that's just part of it, right? Yeah, exactly. But it's hard to know. Right. It's hard to know if you're not exposed to that. For sure. Right? And and so you, uh, I was talking to Katrina Talbot here yeah. earlier about um, becoming an outdoors woman program, which is amazing. It's a great conversation. Are you an instructor for Bo or like, what's your role with that? Yes. Like you've, you've, you were talking about helping new hunters and, and yep. teaching and so forth. Um, so I am, I'm an instructor for Bo. Um, I went to, you know, she does a big fall workshop uh, every September. So I was there this past September and I was teaching a couple different classes. Um, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm teaching like a canine first aid class. Um, so I bring Boone up and uh, let everybody bandage him and do all that kind of fun <laughs> stuff. Just teaching basic um, first aid, canine first aid. That was that was a big thing. Actually, that was probably like one of the biggest barriers for me before going out hunting is I wanted to be sure that I was like, he was as safe as he could possibly be. <laughs> Like doing a ton of research on first aid kits, what I need to have for him. Um, I didn't care about myself quite as much, but luckily I can use most of that same that same stuff for myself. Yeah, that's um, great. Yeah. So uh, I do a canine first aid class, um, just trying to help people feel confident if they are going to use their dog, you know, use them for hunting or just go hiking with them, you know, just feel like they can bring their dog outside and, and be able to take care of them if something goes wrong. Um and I also, so I'm an impre- apprentice hunter ed instructor. So I've been teaching the hunter ed classes as well at, at Bo. And uh, last year, earlier in the year, um, we did a women's hunting 101 class. And it was just, I don't know, I feel like I had so much fun. We were playing with, it, you know, it was May. So we yep. were start playing with turkey calls and that kind of stuff. And yep. I'm like, ah, this is, you know, what I do. We watch a bunch yep. of YouTube videos. Like I've been out a couple of times, but I'm not going to, by no means a pro. Tim does a lot of the calling when we're out there. Um, and just trying to, you know, it was just, it was a ton of fun with all these women who are really interested, but, you know, they 
didn't have any experience and we're all just trying to kind of figure out the turkey calls and it was hilarious and I think everybody had a great time and it's it's hard not to have a good time with the turkey calls oh, right it's so oh, much like, fun the mouth calls. Like, <laughs> yeah my daughter like I've got more calls at the house I've got turkey calls elk calls you know moose calls and like she gets into that yeah. and you can't have a bad time with it it's no, fun definitely not. you know it's good stuff <laughs> I love it so that's really cool um, that's, it's great work that you're doing there with Hunter Ed and with Bo. It's a yeah, tremendous it's definitely, program. It's, it's very rewarding. Super, yeah. super rewarding. It's just, it's awesome having all the people, you know, like some of them actually were getting out hunting this year and it's so cool. It's just really neat to help them kind of get over that hump. They're interested, but they don't know where to go and just kind of showing them getting confidence, yep. um, in themselves and then getting them over the, the hump to actually go out there and, and do it and, themselves. And start doing it. And your yeah. advice about just getting out there and doing it is so spot on in my yeah. experience because it doesn't, it can be so complicated. If you look online and you look at social media and you look at the pictures, it can be overwhelming. It's like, Definitely. what do I need? I need this camo and I need exactly. this. Yeah, there's 12 you, different kinds of camo. I have no idea you know, what I need. Yeah. If you break it down <laughs> to the very basic level, you don't need that stuff. Mm-hmm. You need to stay warm. You need to stay dry. You need to be able to get yourself home safely. Yep. You know what I mean? Definitely. And so um, those are the things to concentrate on. And, and just, everything else will build off of that. For sure. Yeah. And like going with the dog too, you know, there's yep. a ton of super, super well-trained hunting dogs out there do amazing things. Um, Boone's getting there, but he's definitely, you know, he's, he's by no means like a professional (laughs) pro hunter, but he loves it so much. And I would just say, you know, if you've got a dog that's got some of that instinct, just take them out. You know, you get exposed, they get exposed and it's so cool. Yeah. It's really it's awesome. Just make sure they, they come when they're called. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've had beagles, so beagles are a whole different. Well, yeah, that's yeah. very true. Very so, true. Um, Tim, so talk a little bit about um, anything that you would add as far as advice to, to new people. Like from your experience, um, what would you say? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, um, just getting into it, it can, like we've been talking about, it can be a, a pretty big mountain to climb, very daunting uh, I think there's just a lot of resources out there that, uh, you know, are aimed at trying to help folks kind of get into it. Um, you know, if you're interested in certain things, like if you're interested in going grouse hunting, you know, you can spend 30 bucks and join the Rough Grouse Society. Go to a, go to a, a chapter banquet and just yep. talk with some folks. Um, I guarantee you there'll be folks that are more than happy to, to take you out grouse hunting for your first time. Um, I think, you know, I take for granted, you know, having my, my dad as kind of my, uh, hunting mentor when I was younger, um, and always being able to go out with him. But, you know, a lot of people don't have that. So, um, you know, if, if you have friends or other family members that are hunters, you know, just being kind of, you know, just, yeah. just trying to in, in building that community, yeah, just yep. trying to ask them and, yep. and, and getting out with them to gain even a little bit of experience. And other than just getting out there, I mean, like I mentioned, there's a lot of resources. I'm particularly fond of, uh, YouTube. Yep. Uh, so if I'm trying to learn how to call turkeys or, you know, the best places to find, you know, uh, areas to hunt uh on on a map or something like that like like no matter what you want to do there's probably a youtube video for it there is something on youtube about just there about is. everything in life right uh, all and the it can, field dressing and all right, that right. kind of stuff yep, that I feel exactly like a lot of people yeah. yeah yeah it's so true it's great and and the nice thing is is it's a click away 
And they're usually pretty, you know, four or five minutes, maybe 10 minutes or something like that. But you can get a lot of information quick. Yep. Yeah. So it's really, it's a good point. You know, use the resources that you've got out there and like look for those resources, yeah. I think is what I hear you saying. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I think that, that was a big thing. Just sorry. <laughs> um, in general, one of the things that I've learned just the more I've gotten involved with hunting and gotten to meet more hunters is, you know, like Tim was saying, just talking to them is they're always so willing to just take people out and yeah. kind of share that knowledge and everything. And yeah. definitely an awesome resource. Don't be afraid to yeah. go out and, hi, I'm the newbie. Can- take advantage <laughs> yeah. of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's great advice. Um, so anything you want to share, a couple minutes that I haven't asked you, anything you're looking forward to, anything that you feel people should know that we didn't talk about, I'll, I'll open it up as kind of like a an open forum at this point for a couple minutes each. I'm just excited for for getting some ice yeah. on the water here. I think Manny and I are both itching to to get out to do some ice fishing, and uh, you know we we take um, our dog Boone out. Boone Does probably he loves fish ice too? fishing oh, more he than loves we do. Loves ice fishing. Oh, that's cool. Uh, really? Ice fishing. Yep. You know, we walk, we run over to a hole, and he's right there, sticking his head down in the hole. You know, he wants getting to know what we caught. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, catching fish, and he he'll grab the fish and prance around and. Um, all of the women at Bow in the Snow who go out ice fishing will get the experience of fishing with Boone. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, now I'm, I'm feeling like I need to experience that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've been fishing all this time, but there's like this empty void without Boone. <laughs> he really, he does. He really loves it. <laughs> now we just have to worry about, we have a five and a half month old German short-haired pointer. So, um, you know, worrying about keeping him warm while we're out he ace gets, fishing. He gets pretty yeah, cold. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. It, it's like uh, just manage the time, right? Pick yeah. the days. And and a shanty and a heater. Yeah, exactly. I, I I look forward to ice fishing as as well. It's something that, from a family standpoint, I'm so sentimental about it because it's something we've always done for my whole life. You know, I can remember as far back as I can remember, like ice fishing back in the day, on places like Minerva Lake for pike. And then Scroon Lake for Lake Trout and having the Coleman stove. And I mean, it's just the whole family thing. It's such an inclusive kind of thing. Everybody can do it. Right. If you dress warm enough and pick your days and it can be so much fun. Like my, my daughter and I do it. And some days we can last a while. Some days it's a couple hours, but it's always fun. It's great it's no like, matter what. She'll <laughs> play with the bait fish. She'll like, you know, play with the sled. We'll, we'll have fun. And that's what it's all about. Too. Yeah. So We're fortunate cool. to live on a lake yeah. that's got walleye. And so we can cut out work an hour early and, that's pretty and cool. fish the, the night bite yeah. um, and still be home, you know, for dinner. and Make some fish tacos yeah. for dinner. That's right. amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Lucky you. Like like you said, it's great. Like, it's a great thing to, to get people involved with. You know, we took some new folks out last year. Uh, we were just talking with someone on on Facebook through uh, Backcountry Grounders and Anglers, and he was saying how he's interested in going ice fishing this year. And it was like, come on up whenever you want. You know, we're always happy to to have people tag along and come out with us. Yeah, it's such a social thing too, yeah. and it doesn't. You don't have to be quiet. You can just hang out. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's not like deer hunting at all. Um, so okay, that's great. Anything else? Um, plenty of resources on. DEC's website for all sorts of hunting, trapping, fishing, and hunter ed, trapper ed, uh, bow hunter courses, all free. Yep. Um, so if you're looking to, to um, gain some more knowledge, you know, it's it doesn't cost you any money to, 
just to get out there and, you know, take a class and see if it's something that you're interested in. And, and, you know, it doesn't have to be you're a hunter or you're not a hunter. You know, you can, you can focus on certain things if you like, if you're interested in duck hunting or if you're interested in deer hunting, things like that. We live in an amazing place. Like New York state has such an array of outdoor opportunities that people, I think it probably falls under the radar screen of most people outside of the area. But I can tell you like, where we live i mean we have everything from the long island shore to the great lakes to the interior parts of the adirondacks to the finger lakes to the catskills it's it's a great place so there's plenty of outdoor opportunities to have in a variety of different ways yeah and one more thing you know if you have questions about something call your regional biologist yeah i wanted to say that i like definitely i feel like a lot of people you know they think of duc as you know, it's this organization that, that, you know, makes all these regulations and stuff, but we are, we're people too. And we love hearing, you know, whatever you have to say, like, we're happy to chat. I just had somebody send me, um, a picture of their son's first ever harvest. This was the other week. And it was a, uh, 16 year old kid. It got his first squirrel. Um, it was like the coolest. I was, yeah, I loved it. I just, I love getting stuff like that. It's awesome. Um, and yeah, definitely don't hesitate to, to call us yeah. if you have yep. just want to share you know your son just got their first harvest your daughter just you know caught an awesome fish or whatever or if you just have complaints out. or whatever just yeah talk with us we love talking yeah. and yeah we're it's, passionate I, about what we do and happy I, to chat i talked for over an hour with with a gentleman about martin trapping he'd never been out martin trapping before wanted to give it a shot because he was going to be deer hunting up in the adirondacks and he called me uh late last week caught his first martin and is is hooked now yeah that's pretty cool and i can say that one of the most rewarding parts i did a, a destination hunt to nebraska public land do it yourself kind of thing in 2017 one of the most rewarding parts of that whole thing was getting to know the biologist on the uh, the national forest his name was greg wright and um forging that relationship and getting to know him through the process is something that's held over. Like we still occasionally just email and um, it's, it's great. I mean, from a, from a resource standpoint and also just from having somebody on the ground, your advice about like contacting your biologist is spot on. Yeah. Yeah. It really can add a lot of value. So I appreciate you both being on the podcast and uh, look forward to doing it again. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.